Stand. I'll be reading from Second Chronicles chapter 34, Second Chronicles 34, 1 through 7. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, when he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, the carved image, and the molten images. And they tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars that were high above them he chopped down. Also the ashram, the carved images, and the molten images he broke in pieces and ground to powder and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Then he burned the bones of the priests on the altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim, Simeon, even as far as Naphtali, in the surrounding ruins, he also tore down the altars and beat the ashram and the carved images into powder and chopped down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. I'll pray. God, as we look at your word, um, again, we just want to come to you, the author of it, and to have our hearts, Lord, yielded to you. We pray that you would speak to us and that you would find us as Josiah was, Lord, humble and tender of heart um, when he heard your word. In Christ's name, amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, we're coming to the end now of our series in First and Second Kings, and you may not have realized it, but Second Chronicles is kind of the mirror image of First and Second Kings. But Chronicles um, really focuses on the line of David. And so when you come to these kings like Josiah, there's going to be a lot more information in Chronicles typically than with First and Second Kings. But there are four chapters devoted to this man's life. Two chapters in 2 Kings, 22 and 23, and two chapters in 2 Chronicles, 34 and 35. So the Bible likes this man. In fact, if you were to ask probably anybody that's grown up reading their Bible, who was the very best king of Israel, you'd probably get the answer, David. But in fact, the Bible seems to put Josiah ahead of David. He was the last of the eight good kings, not including David and Solomon, but it's of Josiah that it says in 2 Kings, and before him there were no kings like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So that's a pretty big statement, wouldn't you think? Before him there were no kings like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his might. So if you didn't get it, he is the king who best fulfills Deuteronomy 6.4, where it says, Behold, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And then it says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your might. And so the one king who is the best fulfillment of that was not David, but Josiah. So it would seem. He was an exceptionally good king in exceptionally bad times. And I have to think that's one of the reasons that he is given so much time and space in the Bible is because there are never times that are so dark that we cannot live for Christ and from Christ. 
that we cannot abide in Christ. And Hezekiah is a classic example of that. You recall that, I'm sorry, Josiah. Did I say Hezekiah a bunch of times? Josiah. Wow. My brain. Josiah. Prior to Josiah, his grandfather was Manasseh, worst king Israel ever had, by far. And then after Manasseh, Josiah's dad, Ammon, also a very bad king. And during the time of Josiah, Israel has already been taken captive by the Assyrians. Now they're beginning to be a little bit weaker But Egypt is getting stronger, and Egypt is aligned with Assyria, and the Babylonians are really coming on strong. And so this puny little kingdom of Judah is feeling very threatened at this time. Egyptians to the south, Assyrians and Babylonians to the north. Who do you side with? Do you side with anybody? This is going to be a major issue for Josiah. In addition, the idolatry that's in the land is is really beyond description. And there's a lot of description here. And so we just read some of it, of all that he's doing to tear down the idolatry, but it just goes on and on. Because it's been going on for 300 years, ever since Solomon. And it's Josiah who fulfills the prophecy of the unnamed prophet who cried out against Jeroboam's altar and said, O altar, altar, on this altar, Josiah, a son of David, shall arise and he will defile you and burn human bones on you. It appears that Josiah didn't even know about that prophecy, and yet he fulfills it almost three centuries later after it was given. An exceptionally good king in an exceptionally bad times. Eight years old when he became king. Another little toothless king. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. That means he was 39 years old when he was when he dies. And when he dies, there will only be um, 22 years left before the kingdom is taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Very, very bad time. Eight years old when he became king, and this passage says that he did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David, did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now, I don't think that the author here had in mind by right, conservative, and left, liberal. (laughs) But it occurs to me that it applies nonetheless. (laughs) It is easy as Christians to turn to the right or turn to the left. And we be be more known for our political leanings than for Christ. That's not a good thing. And that has always been the case where there's so many things that have the power to turn us right or turn us left. We're living, it's always been that way. But for us as the evangelical church in America, it seems like we've become very political. And I'm not against having political leanings and we have people in this church that that have run for office and one that is running for office at least and wonderful, all for it. We need to be engaged and be involved. But whatever God is calling us to do, he does not want us to go right or left in departure from the central thing, which is Jesus Christ. 
When this boy was in the eighth year of his reign, I went to public school so I can do this math, that means he's 16. He was eight years old when he began to reign, now he's 16. And it says that while he was still a youth, he began to seek the Lord, to seek the God of his father David. 16 years old. And he says, what am I doing with my life? Isn't that interesting? 16. And he begins to seek the God of his father, David. Did you know he did not have a Bible? Never seen a Bible in his life. We don't know if if he had any believers in his life. I'd like to think that there were some around, but we're not told. All we're told is that this 16-year-old boy says, I need God. And he begins to seek after God. I hope that that is something that we can say throughout our lives. Josiah's short 39 years, he sought the Lord the entire time. When Josiah dies after 31 years of being on the throne, started at 8 years old, that means he's 39 years old when he dies, and the Bible tells us his son takes over at 23 years old. Isn't that interesting? 23-year-old son when he dies at 39. So how old was Josiah? Yeah, Josiah when he was a father. 16. The same year he began seeking God. I would imagine that would make anybody seek after God. (laughs) You're a 16-year-old father. You need God. And this boy understood that. And he sought after God. Four years later, still reading here in 2 Chronicles 34, it says that, again, verse 3, In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, 16 years old, he began to seek the God of his father David. In the twelfth year, so now he's 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of all the idolatry. Twenty years old. And he says, we are going to do something about the mess that's around us. Again, doesn't even have a Bible. But he knows after seeking God, this is wrong. Having a Bible makes us very, very accountable, doesn't it? But there is no excuse. And when we stand before the Lord... He's not going to say, oh, you didn't have a Bible. You get a pass. He will say, how many Bibles did you have? Don't tell me you didn't know the truth. But here, this boy, without a Bible, he knows enough to know he needs God. And he sought God for four years. And after four years, he goes, we need to do something about the mess that's around us. And I've got the power to be able to do it. And he used that power for good like few other kings ever before him. In fact, no other king was as as devoted to doing to to the Lord and his will as this king was. And he actually did this, this, this reform, this cleaning up the land in two phases. The first phase, he's just going at it. He's just doing everything he can. And he's 
starts in Jerusalem and then he, he moves over to the Mount of Olives where Solomon had all kinds of idols that were still there. He cleans out, um, he's going to get to the temple and, and that's where they're going to find the Bible. That's coming up and, and he, he moves on out. He goes into, into the area of Israel. He goes to Bethel and, and it's there at Bethel that he's just, everything he sees is idolatrous. He tears it down. He's just, he's personally involved with this. He's not just sending his men out. He's there making sure it happens, tearing down everything that's idolatrous. And when he's in Bethel, they said, tear down the altar. And then he starts ripping up graves and burning the human bones and putting those on the, so he can defile the altar so it's never rebuilt. And he sees a monument of a grave and he, start, and he, and he goes after that. And they say, whoa. And he goes, who is this monument anyway? He's thinking maybe it's another idol. And the men say, this is the monument to the unnamed prophet who prophesied that you would be doing these exact things. And he said, well, leave that one alone. <laughs> this man was, see the words that I'm struggling here with, I want to say this man was zealous. This man was committed. This man was passionate. See, these are the words that we would use today. The problem with that vocabulary, it's not in the Bible. The one word that's used in the Bible to describe each of these good kings is not passionate, not zealous, not committed, devoted. Devoted. And I, I hadn't even really thought about that. All these years I've been teaching kings, and I'm thinking, why have I never thought about this before? These kings are characterized not by commitment, not by zeal, not by passion, but by simple devotion to their Lord. This is the one thing Paul cries out and he says to the Corinthians, I am concerned lest as the serpent deceived Eve in the garden that you should be deceived and turn away from the purity and simplicity of what? Devotion to Jesus Christ. That's what God's after. Commitment deals with me. I'm committed. Devotion deals with affection. Where's my heart? We've all heard and we've said it ourselves. You know, why, why do some marriages succeed and others don't? And you often will hear people say it's because of commitment. Commitment. I hadn't been very, married very long and I heard Patsy's mom say, well, the reason that people live 50 years together is because they are more committed today than what they used to be and what your generation is. Sounds good. But you don't see virtually any, if any, Emphasis in scripture on commitment at all. I went through and looked it up. The Bible says to be wholly devoted. It does not say wholly committed. The word committed or commitment is not used in the Bible except in reference to committing unto the Lord our ways, our works, and our spirit. Lord, here are my ways. Here are my works. Here is my spirit. And that's simply to roll over onto him. In fact, that's what the Hebrew word for commit means, to roll over. And we don't use it that way. We use it in the sense of willpower, determination. That is not how the word is used in the Bible, if it's used at all. It's just casting it over onto the Lord. Commitment is not what God is looking for. God is looking for devotion, and that has to do with affection. This man 
is an exceptionally good man in exceptionally difficult times, not because of his commitment level. That only lasts for so long. But he is an exceptionally good man because of his heart for God. And that is the one thing that God looks for, a heart for him, a simple and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. At 26, he really goes on a tear. That's when, boy, he's just doing so much in this country. So again, verse 3, it says, In the eighth year of his reign, 16 years old, began to seek after God. In the twelfth year of his reign, began to purge Judah and Jerusalem. And during that purge, they start to repair the temple. Verse 8, look at now, it says, Now in the eighteenth year of his reign, now he's 26 years old. So much happens in this 26th year. Most of us can probably look back and say, boy, that was a key year in my life. Um, our students at His Hill that are 18, 19 years old, it's always a bit interesting to me that they can give their, they, they give a, every week, you know, they, different ones are sharing their, their testimonies. And they have about 15 minutes to share their testimony. And they give, they, they leave nothing out in 15 minutes. And I'm going, it's not always going to be that way. <laughs> the day is going to come where you can't cover anything in 15 year, minutes because you're so long. You've lived so long. It's like when my, I told my son-in-law that my life flashed before me. And he says, how long did that take? <laughs> it must have been a really long flash. Man. It's a good thing you're sitting in the other room over there. Yeah. But at 26 years old, he says, we need to do something about the temple. Temple was in total neglect. Neglect in its devotion to the Lord. But it was not a place in disuse. It was being used a lot for idolatry. Jeremiah writes about this. He was a contemporary of Josiah's. And he says that Josiah was taking idols out of the holy of holies. In fact, it appears that the Ark of the Covenant had been removed for good reason. The godly priests that were still around, they're going, there's no way that we can have the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies with idols. This is one of the greatest sins of Manasseh, that he moved idols into the Holy of Holies. I don't know how they got in there without dying. The high priest could only go in once a year, and he had to be afraid that he wasn't going to be struck down. But this is how bad it's gotten. And so in the, in the mess, in the idolatry, in the, in the immorality, there, there were male prostitutes at the temple. Female and male prostitutes both. It was as bad as it can get. It looked like any pagan temple. And they didn't even clean it up. They had horses in the temple that were dedicated to the sun god. It was absolute filth, absolute disrepair, and there was nothing good going on in this place. And this 26-year-old king says, we're doing something about this. There's no record of resistance. There had to have been. But there's no record of it. Apparently didn't matter. He's just going to plow ahead and get it done. And an amazing thing happens as they're repairing and restoring the temple. They come across the Bible. 
verse 14 of chapter, still in Second Chronicles 34. When they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Now there were always to be two copies of Scripture, one in the temple and one at the king's throne. Now you could have more than that, but at the very minimum, two copies of Scripture were always available, one in the temple, one at the king's throne. Well, the king's lost his a long time ago. And now the one that's in the temple has been lost. It's in the temple. They just don't know where it is. I read Wearsby and he goes, this would like being going to a church and they can't find the Bibles. And they don't know where the Bibles are. Unbelievable. And so they find the Bible. And so then the Shaphan starts to give a, a um, report to the king about this. And it says in verse 18, Moreover, Shaphan, the scribe, told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. And it came about when the king heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, Iakim, the son of Shaphan, and on down. And he says in verse 21, Go inquire of the Lord from me and of those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book which have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord which is poured out on us because our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Now, I skip verse 19. It came about when the king heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes. What could he have read that had that kind of response? I don't think he read about creation. And he tore his clothes. I think reading about the flood might be a good thing that would make you tear your clothes. But it wasn't that. Because as we compare 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, several times he says, the covenant. We have sinned against God's covenant. Well, that means that he was reading from Deuteronomy 28, where God pronounces this covenant with Israel. And in it, he lists the blessings of following God and the curses of not following God. And scholar after scholar is in agreement that of all the places in the five books of Moses to read from to get this reaction, that would have been the place, Deuteronomy 28 through 30. And he hears these words and he goes, we are in trouble. We are in serious trouble. And his immediate response, this young 26-year-old man, to tear his clothes and say, we must seek God. Well, Jeremiah must not have been in town that day. Um, and so they found another prophetess, a woman prophet named Huldah, who was in Jerusalem. And they went to her to hear what God has to say. Verse 23, she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell this man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing evil on this place and on its inhabitants. Even all the curses which are written in the book, and that's Deuteronomy 28, which they have read in the presence of King Judah, of the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be poured out on this place, and it shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel regarding the words which you have heard. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants. And because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. So your eyes shall not see all the evil which I will bring on this place and on its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. He trembled before the word of God. He humbled himself when he heard God's word. No one had to do a theology course on the authority of scripture for this man. Isn't it amazing today that we have to tell Christians about the authority of God's word? Not this man. He understood it instinctively. That when he hears God's words, this is not the word of man. He knew that. And it troubled him. Shook him. Sadly, after after Josiah dies... He's going to have a son come on the throne, Jehoiakim, and then a grandson, Jehoiachin. And I believe it's Jehoiachin, his grandson, who will have the word of God brought to him, the book of Isaiah. And as it's read to him, he takes a knife and he cuts it off and throws it into the fire next to his throne until the entire scroll of Isaiah was destroyed. No fear of God. No trembling before God's word. Josiah was a different case. Tender. And God says to him, all the evil that's going to happen to this nation, and they deserve it. We saw that last week. They deserve it all. All the evil that's going to happen to this nation will not happen in your lifetime. Now, Hezekiah got a message like that. Remember? He was going to die. 39 years old, coincidence. He was about to die, and he doesn't have a son. I didn't go into all the detail of that, but he cries out to God, God, I don't want to die. And God gave him 15 more years. And he told him during these next 15 years, there are going to be years of peace for you. Nothing bad is going to happen to you. The Babylonians came to congratulate him for getting well, because he was sick unto death, and God healed him. The Babylonians come and say, hey, we're so happy you didn't die. And he was thrilled by that. And he was flattered. And so he showed the Babylonians everything in his kingdom. Nothing was not revealed. And so then the prophet comes to him and says, what did you show those people? Everything. And God says, because you've done this, you have made your nation vulnerable to the Babylonians and they're going to sack this place and they're going to disperse it. And Hezekiah just thinks, he says, The Lord's will be done. And the Bible says, and he thought in his heart, it's going to be okay during my lifetime. It's like so many politicians that say, let's just keep running up the debt. It's going to be okay in our lifetime. Just complete complacency. Not Josiah. God told him, it's going to be okay in your lifetime. No complacency. Doesn't matter. He still says, God first. 
And so after hearing this, verse 29, the king sent and gathered all the elders in Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites, and all the people from the greatest to the least. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart, with all of his soul, to perform the words of the covenant written in, in this book. Moreover, he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand with him. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah removed all the abominations from all the lands belonging to the sons of Israel and made all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord their God. Throughout his lifetime, they did not turn from following the Lord God of their fathers. What a guy. He's not done yet. Still in the 26th year of his reign, verse th chapter 35, then Josiah celebrated the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover animals on the 14th day of the first month. He set the priests in their offices and encouraged them in the service of the Lord. He put the Holy Covenant, Ark of the Covenant back into the house. And then as it goes on, it says that there was never a time... Um, looking at verse 19 or verse 18, and there has not been a celebrated a Passover like it in Israel since the days of Samuel. Even David didn't ce celebrate the Passover like this, nor had any of the kings of Israel celebrated such a Passover as Josiah did with the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel were present and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, this Passover was celebrated. And this is one of the chief things that he's remembered for. This is not a complacent man saying, I can just live out my days. So the man says, whatever time I have left, I will use all the influence I have to make sure that people under my scope of influence seek God. Wouldn't we all do the same? Especially moms with their children, Dads with their families. I have to, you know, I, many times people say, how is it being a, a grandfather? And I love being a grandfather. It's wonderful. The difficulty is knowing how to be a dad to adult children. That's the difficulty. It was a lot simpler being a dad to minor children. Adult children, a little bit different. Hard knowing what my role is. When do I speak? When do I be quiet? How do you lead? Really tough. Because they have to leave and cleave. They're leading their families. But I see so many different men in Scripture who are leading. It's a different time. I get it. Different culture. But these, these patriarchs, these fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, great-grandfathers who are saying to their generations after them, as far as this family, we will walk with the Lord. Love it. Love it. This was Josiah. I'm king. And as far as the authority I have, as long as I'm living, we will seek after God with all of our being. What a man. Now, let me just make some, well, I've got to get to the end of his life, then I'll make some applications. In verse 20, 
After all of this, when, jo when Josiah had set the temple in order, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to make war at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to engage him. So let's just give a bit of backdrop here. I've already made some allusions to this. Egypt and Assyria are in an alliance with each other. Assyria is getting weak. The Babylonians are getting strong. And so the Assyrians and the Egyptians have formed an alliance against the Babylonians. And Egypt is marching through Israel in order to pair up with Assyria and fight against Babylon. Josiah decides he can't let this happen. And so Josiah goes out in battle against the king of Egypt. The king of Egypt says, Josiah, this is not your fight. God has sent me on this way. And God is telling you, don't fight this fight. It's not your battle. Josiah wouldn't listen. Now, he's in a quandary politically. Okay? The geopolitical situation is because he's in the middle of this, he can't, somebody is going to be mad at him. If he doesn't fight against Egypt, what are the Babylonians going to be? What? Who you say? Oh, you're not our friends. We thought you were our friends, and the Babylonians are coming in. If he does fight against Egypt, he just can't win. Leave him alone. He's in trouble. Fight him. He's in trouble because of these powers that are on both sides of him. And so he chooses what he thinks is the most expedient thing to do. And he knows the Babylonians are getting really strong, and he chooses that he will side with the Babylonians against Egypt. It's going to cost him his life. And again, this happens when he's 39 years old. And so, verse 21, But Necho, or Nikos, sent messengers to him, saying, What have we to do with each other, O king of Judah? I am not coming against you today, but against the house which, with which I am at war. And God has ordered me to hurry. Stop for your own sake from interfering with God who is with me that he may not destroy you. However, Josiah would not turn away, but he disguised himself in order to make war with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho from, Egypt, from the mouth of God, um, but came to make war on the plain of Megiddo. And the archers shot King jo Josiah, and the king said to his servant, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in the second chariot, which he had, and brought him to Jerusalem, where he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. For all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. And Jeremiah was there and chanted a lament for, Jos for Josiah. Let me just make a few observations about this man. First of all, going back to his father and his grandfather were wicked, godless men. Which in my mind raises the question that we sometimes hear about of generational curses and generational sins. I don't know that those are real. I kind of think that they're not. But wherever you fall on that, if they are real, that you can be cursed because of the sins of the generations that came before you. You can be held back and restrained because of other, sin, other sin, generations of, sins of other generations. If that's true, what do you do with the Josiahs of the Bible? 
Because if there was any man who should have been hindered, hamstrung by the generations before him, it should have been this man. And yet he lives an exceptionally good life in exceptionally dark times. Reminds me of Boaz. In the time of the judges when every man did what was right in his own eyes, there's this Boaz out there. Exceptionally godly, selfless man. I don't see how generational sins can apply to that. But even if there is such a thing, the blood of Jesus Christ breaks the power of all sin. My sin and every generation that came before me. And we are made new creatures in Christ when we place our faith in Him. And there is simply no bondage. No bondage. Because we are set free in Christ. I see that in the life of Josiah that godly leadership in an ungodly world is absolutely possible. But I also see that godly leadership in an ungodly world is not enough. The people have to be godly too. And this king, for everything he did, using all his power and influence to turn a nation, wasn't enough. It had gone on for so long, even though their actions had changed for a brief time during the 31 years of his reign. It wasn't enough. Because we have three centuries of idolatry that has embedded itself in the hearts of the nation. And God looks at the heart. We see this today, don't we? It's not enough to have a godly president. It's not enough to even have just simply a principled president. <laughs> and you just, you know, and with the right principles. I think we've had a lot of principled presidents. They just have sometimes the wrong principles. But when you have a guy like former President Trump, we all had just the veil pulled back. It's not enough to have a man with principles when the entire government is corrupt. And we say, well, just, if he becomes president again, he can just fire them all. Yeah, right. And who's he going to replace them with? All those college graduates who have been <laughs> brainwashed to think the same way as the ones that have gotten fired. The only hope is Jesus. It is not. We want principled, godly people. I get it. We pray for it. We encourage them. Everything we can do to get them in office. Absolutely. But what we need is for people to turn to Jesus. That is the only hope for Israel. It's the only hope for this nation is to seek God and to tremble at his word. I see with this man, he should have never gone into that battle. Best king Israel ever had. But he is not infallible when it comes to the decisions that he makes. Godly men can make bad decisions, exercise bad judgment. It's because none of us are perfect. And our attention and our devotion is to be to God, not to men. It's been in the news lately that a very famous preacher who's on the radio um, was taken off a lot of radio stations because of a comment that he made, private comment, one-on-one, -on -one, 
that he made with a lady who asked whether she should go to her grandson's wedding and it was going to be a homosexual wedding. I did not at all agree with the answer of this pastor. But I've been listening to him for a few years now. He's a godly man. He's a good man. But he's not infallible. And he told this grandmother, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but yes, as long as they know that what they're doing is wrong and you don't agree with it, then you should go for the sake of the relationship, even buy them a wedding present. And so that got him axed from a number of radio stations around the country. He's still being broadcast here. Um, it's unfortunate that that's his position. I don't agree with it in the least. But godly men are not infallible. And they can make bad decisions. Josiah, case in point. Good, good and bad kings are determined by their devotion to God, not by their commitment. Is their relationship with Jesus. And ultimately, this is what every one of us is going to stand before God, and the only thing he's looking for is not how committed you were, not how good you were, but about you and Jesus. Was there ever a time in your life when you said, I need a Savior, I cannot save myself, I am a sinner, and the only hope for me is the salvation that is offered as a free gift through Jesus Christ. And you simply say, Jesus, save me. My trust is in you. Thank you for the, your death on my behalf to forgive me of my sin. And thank you for your resurrection where you offer me your very life. It's all God's looking for. Not commitment, not passion, not zeal. But is your heart tender and responsive to the Lord Jesus. I've had that conversation. Again, dear man, can I talk to you about the Lord? And he tells me, you need to know that I grew up in a home, Charlie, where church was never mentioned. And so I'm not talking to you about church, but about Jesus. When I did his wife's funeral, it's my pleasure and privilege to do the funeral of that godly woman and have all these folks out there at the graveside who are Methodist and Lutheran and all flavors and some that don't go to church and be able to tell them, if this woman could speak to us today, she would tell you it is not about church. It's not whether you go to church or don't go to church. It's not about Methodism or Lutheranism or whatever. But it is about Jesus. That's all God is looking for. What have you done with Jesus? Have you received him? Placed your faith in him as the only one who can save you from your sin? Josiah did well domestically at home. Didn't do so well internationally. His one chance on the international scene, and he got it wrong. And he got it wrong, as I said, because he fought a fight that was not his.
to fight. Guilty. Aren't you? Have you ever been guilty of fighting a battle that wasn't yours to fight? Boy, I have. Because I'm so justice oriented. And all you got to do is show me an injustice. And man, I'm on it. Many times fought fights that are not mine to fight. I've been saying as we've gone through the kings that most of these you could summarize their life in a statement that you could put on a tombstone. And on Josiah's you could write, here lies a good man who died fighting the wrong battle. It takes wisdom to know which, which fights are your fights and which ones to leave alone. Proverbs says, any fool will meddle with strife not belonging to him. And then says, it's like grabbing a dog by the ears. Why would you want to do that? It doesn't turn out well. We need to learn to stay in our lane, would be the modern vernacular. Or just to mind your own business. Boy, we're getting so good about minding other people's business. People say, if you see something, say something. They leave out the part, if you see something, talk to them about it. <laughs> it's just, talk to everybody else about it. But we don't talk to them. We have horses at his hill. We've had horses for almost 50 years at his hill. Only in the last couple of years have people complained about our horses. Could we get these new people moving in from out west somewhere. <laughs> and they walk by our horses and they go, look at those starving horses. They don't even have any water. They don't even have any shade. Unbelievable. And we get the news secondhand. Why don't you just call us up and say, we're concerned about your, horse, your horses. Let us show you the vet records on our horses. Let us show you where the water is. You know, and we can show you everything. We know more about these horses than you know about your children, trust me. <laughs> but they don't talk to us. They'll put something on Comfort Facebook page. Or they'll call somebody else who will call us. And I just want to say, do you know the story of Josiah? Mind your own business. Stay in your own lane we'd be so much happier. Laterno University, Christian University, they're old school. They train engineers. And so for many, many years, decades, probably 50 years, these budding engineers have engineered their dorm rooms. And they are very creative. And they have different elevations in their dorm rooms. And they have, and they have all kinds of lighting in their dorm rooms. It's been going on for decades. And while my son was there in school, some mom came through and saw all this wiring and all these lights. And she's thinking, I bet a fire marshal's never been here. So she called up the fire marshal. You should go check out those dorms at Laterno University. And it all had to come down. They've never had a fire. These are engineers. They know how to string lights and not cause a fire. And yet now, 50 years of tr school tradition is gone because of somebody who complained to the authorities rather than going to the right source. Wouldn't you love it 
if government would stay in its lane? Limited government doing only what the Constitution says it's supposed to do? We have so many troubles because government doesn't run in its lane. Same thing for the church. There are things that God has given the church that are not the government's responsibility. And if we would just stay in our lane and do what God has called us to do and leave the rest, it's God's business. It's not, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be unconcerned, but it's not the business he has given to us. I find it's one of the biggest challenges in life is to take every opportunity to God and say, is this what you want for me? Because just because you have the power, have the means, have the opportunity, doesn't mean it's God's will. It may not be what God has for you. Stay in the lane that he has for you. Don't take on responsibilities that aren't yours. Don't fight battles that aren't yours. I'm not telling you to be passive. Josiah was not a passive man. But he, he was doing great when he stayed in his lane. And when he ventured outside of that, it cost him his life. I think there's a lesson there for you and me. When it's all said and done, the thing that I would emphasize with this message in this life, it's not passion, it's not commitment, it's not dedication, devotion. An eight-year-old boy who decides to seek after God in his whole life, that's what characterized him, simply seeking God, a heart for him. That's the only thing that God is after with each of us. I'll close this in prayer. Lord, I thank you again for these stories, historical events that are here for us to learn from. Your ways have not changed. You are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I thank you, God, that you're not looking for passion and zeal and commitment. Who could measure up if that were the case? And we'd be constantly measuring ourselves by others if that were what you were looking for. And I thank you, God, all you want is for us to love you as you have first loved us and to respond in faith and in humility to your great love for us. No one will ever love us better, more fully, more unconditionally than you, God. And I pray that, Lord, our hearts will just be, as you draw us, I know you are drawing our hearts to you, and in that drawing of your spirit, that we would yield, that we would say yes, and come to you, O God, as you beckon us. As Jesus said, come to me, all that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May we be a people who walk humbly with you with a pure and simple devotion to Christ. And again, God, I thank you and praise you. This is all you want. In Jesus' name, amen.